This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Anthony Hamm. Anthony is a freelance writer and photographer, and he joined me to talk all about his new book, The Last Lions of Africa, stories from the front line in the battle to save a species. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm really delighted to have joining me today freelance writer and photographer Anthony Ham. And uh, we are talking about a book that he has just released called The Last Lions of Africa, Stories from the Frontline in the Battle to Save a Species. And it's out now via Alan and Unwin. And Anthony joins me now via Zoom. Hi there, Anthony. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on this book, which is such a beautiful read. Thank you so much. There's so many great stories in this book and we are going to touch on some of the fascinating stories that uh, you do have in your book. One of the things that I first up wanted to ask about, though, is that you clearly have a lot of content to draw upon, a lot of experiences to draw upon in your work, being a freelance writer and also contributing to a number of travel books. And um, I just wonder in terms of your overarching career and professional life, how did you end up focusing so much attention on Africa and what was your experience visiting Africa so many times? For me, Africa's always been a place that from the minute I first stepped onto African soil, and it's a bit of a cliche that everyone talks about going to Africa, you do feel, or a lot of us feel, a real sense of, of, of coming home, a real sense of um, the warmth of the people, the landscapes. There are some landscapes that, that call to mind Australia, the big horizons, the big, you know, the wildlife. Obviously, so the wildlife is a little bit different, but there is a sense of still some wilderness that does survive. And that's always, in some ways, been my driving force. Africa is also filled with so many different stories. And, and I think we do, a, we do a bit of a disservice to a lot of the bigger issues, such as climate change, such as extinction, because they're such big issues and people find them really hard to actually connect to them because they are such overwhelming issues. And so what I wanted to do with my writing was find individual stories. And there are so many of those in Africa because people can connect with those stories and they become a part of the story. And that makes the whole issue of extinction in the case of lions, much easier to understand. That's such a great point. And um, I know that, you know, lions do hold a really special place in a lot of people's hearts. And I mean, they're obviously a huge part of popular culture as well and art. And um, they are such a, a beautiful species. Humans have such, you know, close connections with lions. And I wonder, in terms of your experience going to Africa and, you know, witnessing them in their natural environment and also some quite unnatural environments or less natural than, than normal, how did you connect with lions and what was your experience of them? Lions are one of those creatures that, that it doesn't matter how many David Attenborough documentaries you've seen, when you actually see them in real life, they are every bit as impressive, more so than you ever imagined. And that, that that's true of some animals, such as elephants and so on, but they really are the true giants of the animal kingdom in a sense. They're top of the tree when it comes to predators. They're charismatic. When, they're, when lions are around, you, you get the sense that everything in that, in, within, within range, within that, on those planes, is aware of that lion being there. They, they capture the attention of everything. I've spent a lot of time and some of my happiest memories are camping out 
in Africa in tents and in, in vehicles and, and listening to the lions roar during the night. And that's something that's both thrilling and frightening and exciting all at the same time because it really is the the the, the essence of Africa in a sense, of wild Africa that is, and Africa is a very diverse place, but the essence of the wilderness areas that remain is that sense of wildness and lions speak to that with that roar, with that that presence on the plains. Mm, it's It seems like it would be a very visceral experience to hear not just the lions roar but I guess the, the rest of the orchestra of sounds in Africa. It is and they can be... It can be frightening. Most often it's exciting. It sounds frightening when you think about it in advance, but when you're actually lying there listening to lions, it's you feel alive. You feel, uh, and it's not just lions. I mean, it might be the hyenas laughing and you know, hyenas get a pretty raw deal because of uh, Lion King. Uh, <laughs> everyone sort of seems to think they're these sinister creatures, but you know, they are, they're really charismatic as well. Or, or elephants, you, you can have elephants sort of foraging around your, uh, around your tent and... They, when they wander off, you can, you realise that you've been holding your breath just because it's so exciting, and you know that you you know you're right next to one of these myth, almost mythical creatures. Yeah, it seems like it's something that not everyone. Well, it's clearly something not everyone would get to experience in their lifetime. And yeah, every African species or animal seems to have such a distinct personality and a, a distinct visual characteristics as well. Absolutely, and. I mean, I think the lion, because as you said before, it's it's been such a part of our mythology and, and the same with African, many African people as well, traditional peoples, there is a, a real connection with lions and, and it's because, not least because of the, of the way they look, they are this, uh, there is nothing quite so impressive as a, lion, a male lion with his luxuriant mane um, you know, in, the, in the morning sunlight. It is a quite extraordinary thing and it does really... <laughs> I mean, it can be an almost um, spiritual experience. I, I don't wish to mm. overplay it, but it's certainly the way I feel when I'm out there. Oh, I, I, I can understand that, absolutely. It almost um, seems like they have a sense of regalness, like they, they do seem like they are at that higher plane that you're saying, they're kind of right at the top and they belong there. They do, and and you know, I'm sure I'm sure they know it as well. The, <laughs> they're one of very few animals that can actually... Uh, lie down wherever they want, fall asleep, and know that no one's going to bother them. They can walk across a plane, and I've I've watched or I've followed lions walking across a plane, and every animal that is within a kilometre stops and watches and is ready to run at any moment. The lion may not have even noticed them <sighs> just because he or she knows that he doesn't have to worry. The only people, well, the only people, the only creatures they really have to be concerned about are us. Um, and in many places, mm. in, in where we're in truly wild places, the they don't have to worry about us at all. Out of curiosity, how does a lion and an elephant interact, if at all? Uh, they give each other a pretty wide berth in most cases, but there are a number of places in southern Africa in particular, a place in Botswana in the 1980s, uh, and again now the big place is, is Wangi National Park in Zimbabwe, where lions are actually developing the the skill of hunting elephants and that is an extraordinary differential when it comes to body weight when it comes to to strength but um, lions now in some areas do hunt elephants and they don't hunt the babies because the babies are very well protected by the mothers I, i've been in a situation where i've accidentally come too close to a to a young baby and all of a sudden four uh, adult elephants surrounded her and she was in the middle and completely protected 
And so what the lions will do is they'll attack the adolescents. And so we're talking an even bigger lion yeah. than just a baby. And and so that I mean that is truly one of the the most disturbing, compelling. Uh, encounters in the animal kingdom because there is something special about elephants as well and normally they yeah. don't need to worry about being preyed upon by other animals but in some places they do actually uh, in other places they'll they'll give each other a wide berth that's really interesting elephants are definitely my favorite i've got to say that's for another day in terms of how you begin this book i was really interested that you chose to start in kenya in 2011 and you were looking at um, a really fascinating group of African traditional peoples over in Kenya known as the Maasai tribe, and you were looking at these young Maasai warrior men, one very much in particular, Metaranga, and I was really intrigued that you chose that one because I guess when you first were reading the story of the Maasai warriors and what they did to demonstrate their manliness and their courage and their strength was to kill lions and that was part of their culture and I was really hoping that the uh, narrative would change because I was it made me a bit sad to think of so many lions dying but then it had this fascinating turn of events and uh, I wonder whether you could share with us how you came to be in Kenya and and meet um, the Maasai tribe and the people working with them and and what first brought you to their story. Sure. I was at the time in 2011, 2010, travelling around Africa, really looking for stories because I, I knew that I wanted to tell the stories of lions because of their importance and um, perhaps we'll talk about that a bit later. But the mm. the when I um, I was in contact with an Australian scientist, one of the world's leading cat experts called Dr. Luke Hunter, who at the time was with Panthera, a big cat conservation organisation. He's now with Wildlife Conservation Society. And he put me in contact and said, look, I think there's some really good work going on here. And I travelled to Kenya. And I think what drew me to the story was when I first came to Africa, and I, I was still learning about lions, I assumed that all lions lived within national parks, behind fences, People would go and see them and they, were, they weren't at risk from the people and people weren't at risk from them. As it turns out, 80% or close to 80% of lions live outside national parks. Lions live among the people. And that, to me, is, um, it's like, you know, instead of in Australia in the bush, you know, people will go out into their backyard and find a brown snake. It's like walking out into your backyard and finding a lion. Kids are going to school um, through Lion Country, people are going to the, the river to collect water. And so the Maasai were a case where they were right outside a national park. There was a lion population. There was a big, uh, a growing human population and a growing livestock population because the Maasai are traditionally herders. Maasai traditions, like all traditional peoples in Africa, are really under threat um, as the old ways are, are, are being pushed out by, by modern society and you'll see lots of Maasai with, with mobile phones and um, technology and so on. And there's a real threat, a lot of them are moving to the cities. One of those traditions that, that survived well into the 20th century, and, and it still is practised in some areas, as you said, was that in order to prove themselves to be warriors, they killed... A lion. They prove their courage by killing a lion, and this is a. You know, this isn't shooting a lion with a, a high-powered rifle. This is staring down a lion that's charging at you and killing it with a spear. So it's something that involves great courage. 
Maitaranga is uh, the warrior you mentioned and, and, and is in the book. He came from a, a real family of lion killers. His father and his uncle had killed 15 lions between them. Uh, he obviously aspired to be like them because back then, and we're talking the, the first decade of, of the 21st century, so in, you know, he killed, he, Maitaranga killed his first lion in 1999. And um, up until then, it was very much a rite of passage. It was an act of uh, a, a ritual. A, they respected lines. There was a there was a connection between them, and it was part of their culture. But as the population grew, the lines were in closer and closer proximity with the Maasai and with their cattle, killing more cattle. The Maasai started killing lions in revenge, and so it was no longer a question of ritual. It became a question of revenge, and they were starting to wipe out the lions in that area. And if it had continued that way. There would be no lions left outside the national parks. Maitaranga killed his first lion in 1999. He was just 19 years old. Him telling me about that experience is another one of those experiences, a bit like watching a lion or listening to a lion. I realised after he had told me that story that I'd hardly breathe the whole time, I'd hardly move because he was just so focused on, on killing this lion. And Back then, that was when the transition started to happen between it being something that was sustainable, that was just a matter of ritual, and something that became a whole new level. And, and lions were being killed, you know, 100 lions were being killed in a year. So what was happening was that he kept killing lions, but when he killed his fourth lion, he was locked up and he was beaten by the police and he was fined and told that much worse awaited him if it happened again. And just after he was released, he thought that a lion had killed his cattle. Two of his cows went missing. And so he became convinced that a lion was to blame. They found some lions nearby and they set out to track them. And so this, he, his first line had been all about him being becoming a warrior. This was about revenge. And what he did was they tracked them through the bush. He finally was able to kill the lion. It was a beautiful male lion. And you know, he, he thought he was on the cusp of greatness. This was his fifth lion. He'd soon pass his father and his uncles. And he cut open the stomach and the lion's stomach was empty and he realised that he'd killed the lion out of revenge but also wrongly. And that was something that went to the core of who he was because the Maasai really were, did have a, a very strong respect, a mutual respect with lions. And he didn't know what to do after that. It really became his long, dark night of the soul because he really felt as though he'd overstepped the mark and... and, and couldn't imagine killing any more lions. And it was kind of shocking to me that that was the turning point, a pivotal point. And he, you know, you describe how he really got very depressed or down and, you know, behaviour changed and, you know, he went inside himself really and and the people around him were surprised and shocked and didn't know quite what to do. No, and they, they at the beginning he... he no one could question his courage. He'd already killed five lions, and and that's you know that's the stuff of legend in Maasai society. But then they'd come to him and ask him to join them on hunts, uh, lion hunts, and he'd turn them away and he'd make excuses. And over time, they began to really um, question his courage, to taunt him. And we're talking about extremely proud people uh, who for whom tradition was everything, and for him, he his whole. Uh, life was geared towards this, to proving himself to be the best warrior of his generation. And all of a sudden he didn't have that. And he sort of, in a sense, was between cultures at that moment because he he knew that he couldn't go back to killing lions 
and yet he hadn't really found meaning other than that in the modern world. And so that that was a real crisis point for him, if you like, where he just he didn't know what to do. His whole identity came under under in question. And, you know, part of that tradition, which was really important with the first kill, was getting a new name. And you quoted him in the book as saying, after four lions, I felt that I had fulfilled my greatest wish was to get a lion name. And I had that name from killing the first lion. When I killed the others, they didn't add a new name. So there was nothing of importance that I received. And it was interesting, your kind of response to that, trying to understand if that was really the only reason why. Sure. It, it was really hard for him to, um, even even years later, it was difficult for him to talk about that time after the fifth line because mm. he still had that pride. When he killed the first line, prior to that, his name was Kamunu Saitoti. When a Maasai kills a lion, he's given a name, uh, a, a new name, and that's how he becomes known. And that's how he became known as Maitaranga, which means the one who was first. And that name comes from him being the one to throw the first spear in that in that moment. When he was talking about it years later, there was it took a long time for me to to prize out of him that it really wasn't that he'd already had enough. If it's hard to know, but mm. if he had cut open the, the lion's stomach and found his dead cows in there and felt justified in the killing then he may have continued his line-killing ways. There was something that snapped inside him. But even years later, that was difficult for him to talk about because, again, it was a question of pride. He was he went from being, in some ways, the, the most respected warrior of his generation to someone who you know, people were pointing fingers at and, and saying, you know, he's lost his nerve. And, mm. and that, talking about that years later, and it was something that he found really difficult. And so when he said that about, you know, I... I, I didn't get anything from the the subsequent killings. I'm not sure I believed him and I don't think he expected me to. Yeah. And um, you do also say that he stated his ambition when he was growing up, you know, around this culture and expectation of killing lions and that's a way to demonstrate one's courage and position within the tribe was that, quote, my ambition was to kill more than my father to kill 10. So in terms of Maasai culture, you quoted Eric Ole Kesoy, who was an experienced Maasai warrior and was talking about just how critical and, as he says, an unbreakable bond between the Maasai and the lion, a very strong mutual respect. And so it seems like it's not just about killing that's part of this culture, but also there is a kind of stronger connection there that's deeper than just demonstrating one's strength. Sure. What do you think is that deeper bond? There's a reason why the Maasai choose the lion as their test of courage. It's, it's, it's a recognition of the fact that lions, in a sense, are how the Maasai see themselves. The Maasai see themselves as, as this noble people, as this um, people who have few rivals in, 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 traditional, in their traditional lives in, the, in, in past centuries. They were the rulers of the land wherever they were. And in a sense, they see themselves mirrored in a lion that, that is the, the ruling presence on the plains. So there is a sense that that's why they would choose to kill a lion and that's why they would feel such a strong connection to it. I've heard Maasai talk about the fact that they also consider lions to be the most human of animals in the sense that they live in social groups, which is they're the only cat that live in, in, in social networks. They they eat the same prey as 
people do. They eat meat. They eat, and so there's obvious affection between lions in the same pride, just as there are in, in human societies. And so there is that strong connection, both in the sense of that's how they measure themselves, but it's also they see lions as almost our closest relatives in the natural world. That's really, really fascinating. I can see how that would be the case. And you talk about the way that Mataranga has this real grace and strength and he does stand out among the other Maasai warriors, you say, in terms of his physical presence but also his inner life as well. He is almost the Maasai stereotype. He is this, for some people it would be detached. For me it was a very dignified demeanour. He was not one of the boys. Whenever he would join a conversation, and the first time I met him, I was in a car with a number of Maso. We were going out to look for lions, and he walked towards the car, and as soon as he got there, all conversation stopped. Um, everyone got out of the way to make room for him. And that's that's not any official position that he holds. He just had a certain gravitas. And when he, uh, one of the conservationists who would later work with him, she talked about as soon as she met him, she knew that he was one of the most important people to get on board just because of his presence. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like the lions that, that when, you know, whenever Maitaranga was there, everyone knew he was there and everyone was conscious of him and looking to him in a sense for approval. And in terms of the status of lions across Africa, obviously it's a vast continent, um, but we're looking at the moment in Kenya and of course you travel to other countries within Africa. A lot of people listening may not realise that lions had been so prevalent and they were a huge part of the landscape and have very much in recent times, as you've written, declined very quickly. And there are multiple causes that you state in this book, obviously population growth as one of them and habitat destruction as another. And you also talk about poisonings, which to me was really surprising that that's one of the means by which uh, lions are killed. And it does play into this reason why there is a group called Lion Guardians that has come about that you write about in this initial chapter with Metaranga. And I wonder if you could share with us why Lion Guardians was so important and, and what Metaranga's significance was to that project or is still. Sure. You mentioned poisoning. Mm. You have to understand that a lot of the the killing of lions, these lions are being killed not by soldiers with guns, they're being killed by subsistence farmers who, if a lion kills their cattle, they've lost everything. Mm. The only weapon they have, because hunting lions is illegal in Kenya, the only weapons they have, um, there's a quite insidious poison called carbofurin, which is a natural fertiliser or, or a, something that's used by farmers and is quite readily available. And so that's why the poisoning was taking place, because it was the only method available to a lot of the subsistence farmers to actually take their revenge on the lions who were threatening their livelihood. It's very easy to talk about saving lions from over here, but when when you've only got two cows and a lion eats one of them, that's your livelihood gone for the year and and people face starvation. So that's when conservation becomes really complicated and it also is when we need really innovative solutions. And Lion Guardians is one of those. Maitaranga during that year when he was really in turmoil because he'd killed the fifth lion. He didn't really know what what he would do next or what direction his life would take. He heard that there were a couple of American conservationists uh, working in the area and they had set up a program called the Lion Guardians. And what the Lion Guardians were, was how it worked, 
is that there was a really clever appropriation of Maasai tradition. Instead of the young men proving themselves as warriors by killing lions, they would prove their courage by protecting their communities from lions, by warning herders where the lions were, but also protecting the lions in the process. And there were some really clever adaptations of tradition that took place. It was a part of traditional society that when a lion, as we've already seen, that when you kill a lion, you take on a new name. What they did with the Lion Guardians was that when a Maasai warrior captured a lioness and collared her for the purposes of tracking her and so on, that warrior could name that lion. She became their lion. There's a really interesting story when it comes to Mataranga because when he killed his first lion way back in 1999, long before all of this happened, uh, he was just 19, he killed a lioness and the cub ran off into the bushes. Now, most cubs that are separated from their mother die because they're unable to learn how to hunt, how to become independent on their own. And somehow this lioness survived, although he never knew what happened to it. When he went on a trial run for the first time with the Lion Guardians to, to, to collar a lion, to, to name that lion, they were hunting lions out in the bush, hunting obviously not with guns, but with a, a tranquilizer dart. And he said, I want that lioness. That's the one I want to put the collar on. They did the collaring, quite an emotional scene where they, they get to lay hands on a lion for the first time because the Maasai never actually get to touch the lions until they kill them. So to touch a live lion was, was quite a remarkable thing. And it became apparent very soon after that, the two conservationists, um, Dr. Leela Hazza and Stephanie Dolrenry, after this had happened, what happened, they realised that this lion or Mataranga told them that this lioness was the cub of the very first lion that he'd killed. And so by naming that line, he formed a very special bond with that line. But it was almost like his, his act of redemption because this was the cub whose mother he had killed probably seven, eight years before. And it was almost, it was the story that kind of made the Lion Guardians make sense, that he was one of the great lion-killing warriors of his generation and now he was saving her cub. It was, it's a really nice juxtaposition as to how they were able to transition the the Maasai traditions and give people meaning through their traditions while at the same time saving lines. Yeah, it seems like there are so many beneficiaries of the situation in the environment, the lions, the Maasai warriors, the farmers, locals, lost herders who the Maasai find when they're out looking for lions. Yeah, it's amazing to think it's such an innovative idea um, and, and it's just, been remarkably successful. I mean, the, yeah. what, what was happening often was that because of the changes, because a lot of the young men were going into the cities, often the herding was done by very young children. And so these children would often be out in the bush, they'd become lost. The, these lion guardians would go out, they'd find the children, bring them back safely to their family, which obviously um, helped them to, to, to gain credibility within society. They also helped them to track down their cattle when they were lost, to protect the cattle. And it's a funny thing that when I spoke with him about the courage needed to kill a lion, and he said he actually needed far more courage to, as a lion guardian, when a group of young Maasai warriors were about to go out and try and kill a lion and standing, bet not between the lion physically, but standing between them and, and going out to hunt this lion and saying, please don't do this. Because, you know, you know, the tensions are running high yeah. in that moment. And, and he said it was much scarier trying to convince his own colleagues, his own peers, not to go and hunt a lion than it was to actually hunt a lion in the first place. 
Yeah, makes total sense. And you cite some really interesting figures about the success of the program. You say that in 2011, for the first time since the program began, every adult lioness in the areas patrolled by the lion guardians had cubs. New nomadic males also migrated into the area, which, as you say, was a sure sign that the lion population was rebounding. And then you make some interesting contrasts. So by 2013, there were nearly 3.5 lions per 100 square kilometres, which was up from 1.3 five years earlier. So there seems like there are so many metrics that really have shown its success. And as we were talking about with livestock, they tracked down 92% of lost livestock, which was over 12,000 cows. So in terms of hitting it out of the park on KPIs for an environmental program, it seems like this is one of the greatest examples. It's been an extraordinary success. And it's it's something that I don't think they realised would they expected, I think, to be able to stop the lion killing, but I don't think they realised the impact that that would have upon lion society. A couple of years after I was there, every single lioness in that area had cubs. That hadn't happened for, for a long time. It was working for everyone. It was working for the Maasai communities. It was working for the lions. And the reason why this is such a hugely important story is because if you think back to what we said before about the 80% of lions, uh, in some places it's more, some places it's less, but 80% of lions living outside national parks among people. That's why programs like this are so important because it's really easy if you had to do it. It's quite expensive, but you could put a fence around a national park and the lions would be safe and the people outside them would generally be safe. But that's not where lions live. And so when projects like this work, it's this in some ways is the future of conservation in Africa. They're only going to work you know, if we have some sort of recognition that that the people who live among them have to be looked after as well and Mm. we can as you say we can see the results when it does work and this structure has been replicated across Africa in a number of communities Uh, obviously it becomes a different question Um, the Maasai have a particular tradition surrounding lions but in other places, in Ruaha, for example, in Tanzania, the, the Barabag is, is another people, and they have a different approach to lions. So there, there's a need to find that connection. They've done a similar thing called long shields in, in Zimbabwe, again, taking the whole lion guardian idea, but each time they have to adapt it to local culture. And if, if conservation is going to work, if lions are going to survive, these are the sort of programs that, that will make it happen. Yeah, it's great that you raise that because just around the the area that we're talking about where Lion Guardians is in effect, you say that in the same period that we were discussing about success stories, over 100 lions were poisoned or speared to death. And we've discussed some of those reasons why that's happened. So clearly it's still a challenge to find that cultural connection, find something that's very specific to the peoples who are interacting with lions Absolutely. And it's really hard work because it requires, when Dr. Leela Hazard first went into Maasai land and she lived among the Maasai and she realised she had to understand them before she could do anything. And what's happening is that the lions are being killed at a huge rate while this is happening. But until she found that key, until she understood the traditions enough to be able to come up with a program that, that taps into those there is a real sense of urgency because lions are disappearing in those sort of areas really quickly. And they're still disappearing. If you go into the areas where lion guardians aren't operating, even just neighbouring valleys or, or regions, 
the killings are continuing and poisonings, the, the, the ritual killings, and there's obviously um, concerns about trade in lion body parts. Um, it ha- has certainly hasn't reached the level of, of tigers and, and rhinoceroses yet, but you know, there's all of that happening. And somehow we have this incredible island of success, a little island of success around Africa, and they're the, the things that are going to save lions. And one of the really um, great parts about your book is that you talk about these areas and different challenges that places in Africa face with lions and preserving them and also the kind of conflicts that come up between humans and lions is that you utilise and focus on a range of individual lions and follow their story and you kind of feel like you get to know them and their their individual quirks and the fascinating parts that make them them and clearly um, the, the humans that live with them also have that close understanding of their personalities and, and stories, histories. I mentioned it before, I think that conservationists end up talking to, to each other and I think what we need is stories that ordinary people can connect with because we all still love stories. And I think most people really do want to save lions. By, by telling individual stories, what we're able to do is to connect people in a way, as you say, that to a particular story, but that illustrates a broader point about lions or about traditional peoples and how they're actually living together. And there are a lot of surprising parts of the lion kingdom that do add to the challenge, it seems, in terms of conserving them. And one of them was about their territoriality, particularly, obviously, the males and the way that they dominate a kind of specific region, which is, I guess, their kingdom. Obviously, there are nomads as well, but it was fascinating when you were recounting a number of stories and what seemed to come up a lot was this taking over of kingdoms and this fascinating bites between different animals and different lions in particular. What happens with lions is that um, they're the only social big cat, well, they're the only social wild cat, really. And so they live in prides. And the core of these prides is a multi-generational sisterhood of, of females. So when a female cub is born into a pride, she will grow up and spend her whole life. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but as a general rule, spend her whole life surrounded by her sisters, her aunts, her, her mother, her grandmother. It's a it's a really uh, strong social network and they'll defend each other. They'll set up creches for their for the cubs so that each will bring up the other's cubs and, and so on. And so that's the core of the pride. A male cub is born into a pride and that's fine for the first couple of years. But when they reach a couple of years old, they will become a, a threat to the male, their father, who rules over the pride. And usually a pride is ruled over by one, sometimes more, uh, sometimes quite a few more, male lions, brothers, usually related males. When that that male cub reaches two or three years, the male will kick him out and the male will cast him to the wind, so to speak, and he will set off to become a nomad to try and find his own territory to rule over. What a male lion's driving motivation, if you like, is, is to pass on his genes to the next generation of lions. So when he finds a pride, he'll find a pride that's ruled over by other males, and he's got to challenge those males and fight them, often to the death. Uh, Often one will be driven out uh, into the wilderness, if you like, but they will then take over that pride if they are successful in in trying to to take over. They'll take over the pride, and what happens is that they will kill any dependent cubs that are still there. 
that sounds pretty brutal, and of course it is. It's quite heartbreaking to watch because there's no sentiment involved whatsoever. But when a male lion kills the cubs, the female lions will come into estrus and they will mate with the new male lion and then his genes will survive. So what needs to happen is that that lion then needs to hold on to that territory, hold on to that pride for two to three years so that the next generation of cubs can become independent and then his job's done. He may stick around longer. And so what happens is that there's, you have these extraordinary battles to control the pride because this is, in some cases, a male lion's only shot at at doing what he his genes tell him to do, which is to pass on his genes to his offspring. It seems like that's a driver for genetic diversity, or at least it hopes to be. Absolutely. What The whole reason why young males don't stay with their natal pride, and there are cases where disruption has happened and they've ended up mating with their mothers and so on, and that, that's a recipe for disaster, perhaps not so much in the short term but in the, genetically in the long term, because... A genetic diversity will mean that lions are less susceptible to disease. They're less susceptible to um, whatever threats, to, to birth defects and so on. But when lion society functions properly, what happens is that the males go off and they'll go off somewhere else and they'll probably never return to their the, the pride they were born into because other males will come in, mate with the females and maintain that diverse gene pool. And so that's it does have a, re, a, a purpose as to kicking the males out that ensures in a sense that that a lion population's genes will continue to be healthy and the overall population of lions has a better chance of uh, of surviving when for example there was a case in the Serengeti back in the 1990s where um, canine distemper came into the park through some uh, stray dogs in the surrounding communities and um, 1,000 lions were wiped out in, in a very short period of time when you have genetic diversity there is a certain number of those lions that will actually survive and ensure that lions can survive. And that's the problem that happens too when, you know, we have at the moment, the last study suggests that there's 22,500 lions left in Africa. That sounds like a lot of lions, but a lot of those are in really small populations. And part of the problem with those is that you have a very small gene pool. And so they end up inbreeding and you end up with lion populations that just aren't healthy. And the only way is if there's some sort of movement between populations so that you can... Um, it's happened in uh, in Tanzania in a place called Ngorogoro. There's a crater where there's four lion prides, but because of the crater walls, they can't really leave very easily, and so you have a really unhealthy gene pool. And can you remind me, what was the original kind of projections around where we were starting off at in the 20th century in terms of lion populations? Because it, it would be helpful to give people a sense of the difference between 22,000 and... <laughs> Sure. The original. No one really knows, but at the start of the 20th century, there were at least 200,000 mm. lions. So we're talking a 90% drop. So 90% of lions have gone, and, and this has been described as a catastrophic decline. They've disappeared from 95% of their historical range, so they're only occupying 5% of where they used to be. They've become locally extinct in 26 African countries. They're still present in 28 African countries, but of these, only six of these have a 1,000 lions. So mostly we're talking about really small populations. The other thing to remember about the 22,500 figure is that it sounds like a lot of lions because, you know, there's only 4,000 tigers left. There's only 1,000 mountain gorillas left. And that's that's true. They're, they're critically endangered and, and, and in great trouble. The problem is that if lions were to get down to that number, that it would be too late by then. 
In the case of tigers, for example, tigers are a solitary species, and so they're more widely spread. So 4,000 is the equivalent of a lot more lions, if you like. Gorillas are social, but there are only four populations. And so if you were down to four populations of lions, you'd, you'd, we'd be in great trouble. So I think it's out, even though it sounds like a lot more lions than, than perhaps some other species, because of the way lions live, because of their social structure, because of where they're distributed, they're actually in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And in terms of the centrality of the lion in the African ecosystem or many ecosystems within Africa, you write about the fact that take lions out of the equation and ecosystems fall apart. Without lions, populations of other species increase unchecked, habitats are destroyed, and there is no barrier to humankind's final destruction and desperate takeover of barely habitable land. It's not surprising to someone who might study conservation to realise that lions might be an important part of an ecosystem, but it sounds like they are pretty much the pivotal part. They are. Lions are our finger in the dike, if you like. They're, they're the keystone species. What happens when you take a lion population out? It doesn't happen straight away. But what happens is everything gets thrown out of balance. You end up with, uh, depending on where they are, but, but with um, antelope or wildebeest species, growing out of control in terms of their numbers. Lions keep those sort of populations healthy and in check by killing old and injured animals. So the health of the wildebeest also end up being affected. If there's too many wildebeest, they eat the grasslands. And over time, what happens is that um, desertification takes place. It happened in uh, the US, in Yellowstone National Park. Wolves were wiped out in the 1920s and a lot of people cheered and said that's great because they were going into neighbouring communities and eating people's cows or whatever it was. What they found, however, was that without wolves in the ecosystem, elk numbers became out of control. Because of the impact of not having the elk under control, a lot of tree species suffered and became unhealthy. What happened when they put them back in was that wolves actually put the ecosystem back into balance. It's something that can be hard to imagine, but what happens is when you take out the top predator, everything cascades down through an ecosystem in a way that won't change the ecosystem in a year or two years, but over time, the whole health of the ecosystem. And there was a case that I've written about in the book in, in, in Western Zambia where one lioness survived. And what happened was the hyena population got out of control. There were 200 hyenas the whole ecosystem started to fall apart. And we can see it happening, and we can see it happening over time, but it's very hard to put lines back once you've lost them. There's another aspect to it as well, and that is that they've done a scientific study that the cost of saving lions is almost exactly the same as the cost of saving Africa's wild places. If you can save lions, you save Africa's wild places, and it will cost the same to do that. And that's a remarkable statistic because that means that if we save lions and if we get this right, we won't save every ecosystem, but at least the ecosystems that we do save will be healthy, that will function in the way that they're supposed to. Mm, that is a fascinating and really, really important motivating statistic, I hope. And I did want to just quickly pick up on the lioness that you mentioned because 
given that she was a, a solitary lioness and there were no male lions around for such a, a long period of time, it seems like in your story that you recount that it actually changed her behaviour and she was interacting with humans, one human in particular, in a totally abnormal, I guess, way than than what a lion would normally do and, and she was almost like projecting onto a male human. I wonder if you could tell us about that relationship and what that kind of revealed to you when you met that person and and understood that interaction, that effect of having no males for a lioness being a very social creature, as you say, that's really inherent and critical to their life. Absolutely. She's one of those lions that changed, and, and every lion is its own story, but she's one of those lions that changed the whole way that I... I thought about lions and their relationship with humans. She had been, there were a large number of lions in this national park out in Western Zambia. There'd been a poaching outbreak that was just across the border from Angola where there was a civil war, there were guns everywhere. And the national park authorities effectively abandoned the park. When they went back in in 2002, and you, you spoke of one of these, these people, his name was Jacob Tembo, and he was my guide when I visited Lewa. And he went back in looking for lions after they thought that they'd all gone. And he came across this lioness and you know, everyone was so excited because they thought there are still lions here. And she was calling in the night. They heard her calling in the night. Lions only call really because they want to contact other lions. She had perhaps been almost a decade on her own. She was still calling. They're such social animals that she was still calling in the hope that another lion would answer. Over time, they followed her, hoping that she would lead them to to other lions. And, of course, they didn't. They suddenly realised that she was the last lioness there. And what happened was that one night he was sleeping in his tent and he was there with a a filmmaker from South Africa. And uh, he could hear hyenas making noise out across the plains and he thought uh, the filmmaker's going to want to film this. So he got out of his tent to walk over and wake up the, the filmmaker. And as he stepped out of his tent, he... He says that he saw something that was darker than the darkness and he realised that it was the lioness lying down in front of his tent. And I've been with uh, with Jacob Tembo out in the bush and he's he's a man mountain. He's this huge guy. He, he goes nowhere without his AK-47. Lovely guy, but he's a really formidable presence. But even he would not normally want to put himself in that position where he's a metre away from a lion that in the darkness because that's when lions hunt. Before he could decide what to do, he just froze. And before he could decide what to do, the lioness stood up, walked away, let him pass. So he thought, oh, I'll keep going. He walked over, woke the filmmaker, and the lioness followed. But she wasn't stalking him. She was actually just following him. Over time, what ended up happening was that she'd come into their camp and she'd lie just a few metres away from them. On one night, he was sleeping in his tent and he was lying up against the canvas of the tent. And he woke and he could feel this rumbling and he thought, he, he was a bit disoriented and he thought it might have been an earthquake or something. And he suddenly realised that the lioness was actually lying up against him, only canvas separating the two of them, and she was purring. And she was there was this moment where he was lying there in the night and this lioness is lying next to him like a big pussycat, purring. And another night they were out, they heard her hunting and so they, they could hear the, the, the wildebeest crying out and so on. So they got all their gear together and took off in the car. And as they were driving to the point... They came across the lioness, Lady Liwa, and she was coming towards them. When she saw them, she turned around, led them back to the wildebeest, and then reenacted for them the whole act of hunting. And at each stage, stopped and looked up at them. This is almost unheard of behaviour in a lion. 
And, you know, there's a whole lot to the story where the local people Mm. believe that she is one of their ancestors who became a lion after her death and so on. And so all of that obviously fueled that. But even if you don't believe this, there was this lioness that obviously just was looking for company. And she found it in people. And that's that's a remarkable thing because that just doesn't happen. <laughs> and one of the statements you make and observations was that in your mind, it seemed like loneliness was a driver because for one week at least, she was with the humans and hadn't been hunting and feeding. And it seemed like her need for company in the form of humans was stronger than her desire to eat food. Sure. And she she did a lot of remarkable things. Later, they were able to bring in some lines and, and it was all about building up her pride. And, and again, there's a whole story around that. But when a couple of these new lines came in, they were obviously wild, wild lines that had been brought in from elsewhere. And they had no such relationship with people or with, with, with Jacob Tembo. And one night, uh, Jacob and the filmmaker were filming and they drained the battery um, using the spotlight to film. And so they had to get out and push push the car now they were quite used to Lady Lewa who would be quite close to them but what happened was that Lady Lewa was there but these two male lions also were there and suddenly as soon as they got out of the car and it's a golden rule of being out in Africa is you don't get out of the car because lions will then see you as as potential prey the lions charged at Jacob Tembo and the filmmaker and Lady Lewa jumped in between them and swatted at them and drove them off. She actually protected her two human friends, if you like. And it nearly had a really sinister postscript because later that night, Jacob was sleeping in his tent and the two male lions came and ripped the tent to shred and attacked him. And he had to fire his gun into the air to, to scare them off. It really just reinforces how unusual, reinforces how unusual her behaviour was and mm. how remarkable it wasn't just that she wanted the company she was going to stand between charging lions to protect them yeah yeah it's a really beautiful story i do hope people can read the whole chapter to get a sense of the whole picture to finish out the conversation i did want to touch on something that's a bit of a important part in this story which you definitely focus on in the book and i think it is important to have a full picture which is um, the discussion around hunting concessions and the role of trophy hunting and tourism and whether hunting concessions are truly a good thing or a bad thing and i was interested in that dilemma that you bring up and the competing arguments about it and the role that outsiders play as well in playing into that system. And I just wonder whether you could share with us your observations on that and what you came to after visiting so many nations in Africa and witnessing the different arrangements. Personally, I find the very notion of shooting a lion to be abhorrent. I mean, it's not something I can imagine Mm. why anyone would think that that it was more beautiful to see a lion mounted on a wall than wild in Africa. I don't understand. But there is a very strong conservation argument that if we can put a value on wildlife, then people will protect them, the local people, the people who have to live alongside lions. A large proportion of the wild lions in Africa live in areas where hunting is permitted. Some trophy hunters, I don't want to call them sport hunters because I don't think there's a whole lot of sport involved. It's not uh, It's not like the old days when you'd have Ernest Hemingway stalking them through the bush or, or Theodore Roosevelt and, and they were actually genuinely uh, on foot and putting themselves in a little bit of danger. This is usually a lion is, is, is baited onto a kill. 
the hunter will hunt them from a hide, perhaps 50 metres away, I'm not sure of the distance, but there's very little sport. All they have to do is shoot straight. But trophy hunters, what happens is that they will often pay up to $50,000 just for a permit to shoot a lion. That $50,000 is a huge amount for a local community and provided the money goes into that local community, it can encourage local communities to protect lions because if lions are there, then they will have the opportunity to earn that money. Also, a lot of the hunting concessions are in areas that are not suitable for photo tourism. They're not very pretty, they're, they're scrub and so on. And so if this was not used for hunting, if these areas were not used for hunting, they may be cleared for agriculture and important habitat we lost. So, so hunting can have a contribution in terms of making, making it worthwhile for people to protect lions. The problem is that that doesn't always happen. The only way it works is if we have sustainable quotas. That means that you're not shooting too many lions. It also means that you're only shooting males of a certain age, which if lions are over seven, then that's generally considered okay because they've probably had time to already bring up a cohort of cubs. And it's best not to shoot lions, obviously, that are in control of a pride because as we've seen in Zimbabwe, and I've explained this in the book, it causes great social disruption and what we were talking about before with the infanticide. The problem is that most hunting doesn't actually follow any many of these rules, particularly in places like Tanzania. And you have what is an ideal, which is that, that hunting can do good work, but in practice it doesn't really, it's only in very few places where that's happening, sometimes in Namibia, some places in Zimbabwe. There was a case back in um, 2014 in Namibia where the Namibian government auctioned off a permit to shoot a critically endangered black rhinoceros. Now, nowhere in Africa are you allowed to shoot black rhinos because they're, in, they're critically endangered. But this rhino was past its breeding age. It was a danger to other rhinos. They promised to put the money from the auction of this permit back into black rhino conservation. And a hunter from America bid 350000 US dollars for the right to kill this rhino. Now, that raised really complicated issues because a lot of people who are against hunting are against hunting because they don't want to see any animal killed. And I'd be happy with that in an ideal world. But this rhino was, was a danger to other rhinos and so on. And the hunter who made the winning bid said, look, if any conservationist will top this bid, I'm happy to let the black rhino live. And of course, no one did. And so it's a really complicated story. The, there was another story in the book that I talk about in the introduction of, of a lioness that had been killing cattle outside a national park. So they had to take her out of the area. But then they didn't know what to do with her. And so what they did was they put her in a pen somewhere while they decided what to do with her. And in order for her to be kept alive in that pen, they had to kill other animals. And so there's often this desire to say hunting is bad because we're killing animals. But on the ground in Africa, it's never that simple. In order to actually save some animals, in order to actually ensure that habitats are protected, sometimes under very strict circumstances, hunting can be a solution. It's not one I like. I don't think it's one that any conservationists like. But it's one that, if done properly, can make a difference. Mm. It, it reminds me of um, another moral or ethical dilemma where it seems so great in its ideal form, but then in practice doesn't often doesn't work. Not always, but um, many times hasn't worked. And that's the idea of or concept of offsets. And it seems like you know even in Victoria and our grasslands, the idea of offsets hasn't been necessarily that beneficial but I can see those two sides and the arguments on both but it seems that you can have quite a personal response depending on your moral or ethical framework you know it can be really difficult to 
to understand. Sure, um, and I think most of us most of us have that reaction. Um, mm. I mean, the very notion of I don't know if you've heard of them talk about the big five in Africa, which is the elephant, the buffalo, the rhino, the leopard, and the lion. And these are the animals that are considered the must sees on safari. Where those big five actually come from are the five most dangerous animals to hunt. So that if you shoot back in the early 20th century, when a hunter would shoot a lion or a leopard or any of these animals, these are the ones that were considered, if you didn't kill it the first time, it would likely kill you. That doesn't happen anymore. That's not what hunting's about in most cases. And I I find most hunting to be quite, well, apart from being unsustainable, I find it to be quite unjustifiable. Where it can work, however, and and, and where it does work, you know, there are places where some, and, and I've talked a little bit about this in the book, there are some species in South Africa where it has been claimed that these species have come back from extinction because they were able to survive on hunting concessions where uh, ecosystems were protected and habitat was protected. Mm. Um, but again, that visceral reaction that you're talking about, it's why the world, the phenomenon of Cecil in 2015, the lion that was shot in Zimbabwe, that visceral reaction is how most people responded. And that was fantastic. It was a wonderful thing to see so many people caring about lions and, and donating money to lion conservation. And, and in the book, at the, at the back of the book, I put a number of organisations that do work in lion conservation that, mm. that accept donations. And some of them were involved in that fight to save Cecil. What my book is about is that it's a lot more complicated than that. That was a very clear story of right and wrong. And, and very often it's not that simple. And that's that's why we need the sort of what we were talking about before, the, the innovative uh, conservation programs like Lion Guardians, and, and there are a lot of them happening in Africa, some of, some of which I've written about in the book. That's why we need them because it's not always as simple as hunter bad, you know, we should stop hunting. It doesn't always work that way. Anthony, you have brought a huge amount of nuance to this story and a lot of passion and insight, and um, I really got engrossed in the book so much. I really enjoyed all of the stories that you told, and of course, there are a number we haven't touched on naturally, so people can go back to the book and read it. It's called The Last Lions of Africa. And um, if people did want to to follow up, I'm guessing going to your book, of course, would be the first thing to read it about this issue and understand it better. But another thing might be to go to those links that you've provided and link in with any of those groups that you've listed as being important to the lion's survival. Absolutely. All of um, Some of those groups which I've mentioned at the back of the book are involved in the actual stories that I've written about in the book. Some of them are just doing great work that you know, I couldn't necessarily cover all the stories in the book but there's a lot of good work going on out there and a lot of all of those organizations are doing good work and so that's a great place to start yes thank you so much anthony for joining us today and uh congratulations on this book and um yeah it's been a a real pleasure and also thank you for taking beautiful photographs of these lines as well we haven't had a chance to talk about your photography but um i do hope people can also look at the beautiful photos you've taken thanks amy i really enjoyed talking to you thank you I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.